Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With Dale fucking Comstock. We're going to go into your <laughs> book, American Badass, which is actually that first episode you and I did, episode 50, so I think 300 and... It's actually kind of weird. This is episode 310, and I think we did the episode, I checked it last night, 310 days ago. But it was originally about American Badass, your book, which will be in the description, sticking to the top comments. A fantastic fucking read. But there's more. You can't get everything out of it just from reading it because, you know, it's not a manual on how to build a car. It's just the most insane firsthand stories from your time in Delta Force and, you know, other things that will not be named. And... But, you know, kind of want to hear it from your mouth and, you know, a detailed, not an exact reading, but more so just kind of the whole thing. I wanted to hear it from you originally, right? I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear a Beatles song on a radio. I want to hear John Lennon fucking singing it, right? So it's, <laughs> to, to equate you with John Lennon, let's jump into it, Dale. Yeah, man. So, um, yeah, we've done quite a few of these already, man. And I, I just realized as we started the show that, uh, you know, I was probably, I'm probably real remiss by not kind of telling people a little bit about myself. Yeah. Um, and so, for the, especially for the new viewers that are out there, and uh, you know what, who I am, and, and what this is all about, and uh, and kind of you know some of my uh, my opinions and my and my perspective on things in life. So, real quick, um, I'm actually calling or talking to you right now from Bali, Indonesia. Uh, yes, Bali, and uh, I'm in paradise. This is where I live. Um, I actually have two homes. I have one in, as you know, in Panama City Beach, Florida, um, and then I have the other one here in in Bali. And so, what brings me to Bali? Um, a woman, right? So it was actually my, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it, it, man, it, it leads us all kind of down all kinds of crazy roads. But uh, yeah, no, my wife. I met my wife in Hong Kong about six years ago, almost seven years ago. Yeah, 2013, right? So um, December 2013, in fact. I was working as a bodyguard over there for a company and I was running a security detail for a multi-billionaire um, investment banker. So I had a great, it was a great job and uh, living downtown, Hong Kong, Wan Chai. Anybody's ever been to Wan Chai knows what I'm talking about. And then eventually I met my wife and then uh, one thing led to another. We had a relationship. She moved back to Indonesia. Um, I moved back to the States and then I flew back to Indonesia and, and then when I got to Indonesia, I'm like, wow, it's kind of cool. I saw business opportunities and, you know, my, <laughs> anyways, my, you know, my life was kind of circling and draining the U S my, my personal life. So, um, you know, that's what brought me here to Indonesia to make a long story short, you know, my wife. And so, um, I started out in Jakarta, I uh, lived there for about three years and then, um, we ended up down here in Bali almost three years ago. We run a security company here. So I run a security company in Bali, particularly canine, uh, exposing canine detector dogs, narcotic detector dogs, patrol dogs, and I supply them. Um, I was supplying them for the hotels here until the COVID hit. So um, 
you know, my background real quick for those that are not too familiar with me or familiar with me at all. You know, I spent 20 years in the U.S. Army as a Green Beret, a Delta Force operator, um, as a paratrooper in an infantry company. Uh, I was a work long range reconnaissance platoon. I, I left the Army in 2001, started my first company called Global Security Consultants, which I sold in 2004 to G4S. Concurrently, I was also working for uh, the government, OGA. I'll let you look that up on the internet and see what that all means. But, uh, you know, I was, a, I was an operative for them, and I did that for nine and a half years. Ultimately, was discovered by Discovery Channel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> discovered by Discovery Channel. Oh, that's pretty good, right? So anyway, I got discovered by Discovery Channel. Um, they wanted me on a me on a TV show called One Man Army. I went on that show, did pretty well. Um didn't think anything was going to come of it. Just thought it was going to be like another chapter in my book. You know, that would be it. And then uh, wasn't too much longer after that. I got a call from NBC. Said they saw me on Discovery Channel. I liked what they saw. And uh, one thing led to another. Um, I went through another interview process. And uh, I believe there was about 10,000 candidates that actually applied for this um, TV show. And I was one of eight guys to make it called Stars Earned Stripes. And uh, I was paired up with Terry Crews on TV. Some of you may have seen that. So anyways, um, it goes on and on and on and on, right? So I, I got involved in Hollywood. I got I was still doing security, um, still living in Indonesia. Um, I can go on and on and on. But uh, here I am today, and I'm still involved in security. Uh, I'm doing some contracting work uh, here in, the, in, um, in Indonesia, you know, basically uh, – you know, selling deals and trying to make deals with the government, selling widgets and gadgets and mm-hmm. guns and stuff. Um, I still train. I'm a trainer out there. Um, I do a lot of life coaching, a lot of performance coaching. That's kind of my niche. I love coaching, coaching people on performance. Um, and uh, for the most part, that's what I really do here. My wife runs a security company here. In fact, she's getting ready to start a uh, Wait for this, a fish farm. <laughs> and uh, it's big money. It's big money here, right? So um, we've been kicking that can down the street for a little while, and I just couldn't get my head around fish farming, right? And uh, until I talked to some guys that are actually making a lot of money farming fish, I'm like, wait a minute, what? So here we are, right? Fuck it. <laughs> I said, woman, get the fish net. <laughs> get the fish. <laughs> we're starting to And we're starting digging that hole, right? And so... Um, Yes. <laughs> I started digging holes, woman. Water. So, anyways, that's where we're going next. And uh, I told us, like, I don't want nothing to do with fish farming. Sure. Right. And uh, I said, that's your business, right? Yeah. So I said, now you got two to run. You're going to run the security company because I gave her this. And yeah. I said, you're going to run this fish farm, right? And uh, let me go do what I do, which is consulting, which is trainings, which is, uh, you know, business development with, you know, you know on, a, on a larger scale. Yeah. So, here I am. All right, so that's my background. I can go on all day long, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll spare you, spare you the uh, the agony of all that. So, um, so yeah, so talk about the book American Badass, right? So actually, just to give you a little background on that. I wrote the reason I wrote American Badass. I was on the set with uh, Chris Kyle on Stars and Stripes, and uh, I didn't know Chris. Just met him. Um, I'm like, oh, you're the American sniper. Okay, cool. And then he showed me his book. Oh, wow, you wrote a book. And uh, he's like, well, you know, I kind of wrote it, but somebody else kind of wrote it, you know. And uh, oh, it's very cool, man. And uh, I didn't have a book yet, right? <laughs> so, you know, so I turned around and called my management team. Hey, I don't have a book. book. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I keep up with this American sniper guy. Yeah, right? fuck and this so, guy. Um, so, 
that was really literally that's what I did, man. I turned around, went over and called, called my management team. And I told them that, and uh, but I did caveat. I said, look, man, I don't want to write a book about me and how many people I've done just overseas. You sure. know, it's, everybody writes about. Been there, done that. Yeah. yeah, you know, everybody wants to. You know, I said, look, I want to write a book that inspires and motivates young men in America. That's what I want to do. I said, I want to use my life stories to do that. Um, so we can tell all these other cool stories, stuff that I did in Iraq and Afghanistan and everywhere else. Um, but there needs to be, um, there needs to be a lesson learned in there, right? That people, uh, you know, something that, a takeaway, right? To make people, make these young men better people. It's not just men, anybody can be better. Yeah. Um, but particularly that's just who was in my mind at the time. Cause I'm looking around at all these skinny jean kids, you know, and, uh, you know, I had some, I, I don't want to get into some personal stuff, but man, you know, when you, when, I, when you have a boy doesn't want to go outside because his hair will get wet because it's raining, I mean, there's a problem, right? And so it's stuff yeah. like that, you know, I was getting exposed to, and which was very different from when I grew up, right? We, when I grew up, we played, we played in the rain, the mud, the snow, you know, we played football outside the mud in the street, you know, yeah. hours and hours until there was no light left to play in, right? Yeah. Um, cold as hell, you know, it's in phases one bit. But uh, today it's a different breed, man. It's a different, uh, you know, generation's different, man. But anyways, so that was my motivation for writing the book, American Badass. Now, prior to that, I wrote a combatant's manual for third special forces group. So before the army or the military uh, basically reinstituted a hand-to-hand program, I was already teaching hand-to-hand in 1990, basically 94 to 96 in Delta. Then I went to third special forces group. And basically just as a, I wasn't detailed to do this on my own. I started running a combatives program for the A-teams there, right? So I would come in at 5.30 in the morning, and I would have one A-team for two weeks, 5.30 every morning for two hours, and I would teach them combatives, right? And um, and that led to me writing a hand-to-hand combat manual, from which I understand um, became the base document for the Army-wide hand-to-hand program. So... Um, I do have a copy of that manual. Actually, I don't have it with me here, um, but it is on my website at www.tier1performancecoaching.com. It's a PDF copy. I mean, I have the hard copy, but it's a PDF copy. It's, uh, you know, you can download. Anyways, um, and then I wrote my third book, which was with my ex, about my ex-wife. Um, it's an allegory. And, uh, you know, I copyrighted it. And then, you know, anyway, I published it and that turned into a shit show. Right, because you know she got mad. She didn't write one damn letter in the damn book. Right, and I gave her three options. I gave her three cho- chances to basically share the profits on because I did all the work. Yeah, and uh, she didn't do anything. And it was an allegory, so it's not all true, right? Mm-hmm. It was, but you know, I kind of depicted her in this thing. And we were going through a divorce at the time, so you know that didn't work Fuck. out too well. And I actually published it, and then she managed to, you know, course all her friends on Facebook to get on her, write a negative comment, give one star on Amazon, you know. And here's the irony. I wasn't even collecting the money for myself. I told us that money will go into a, a, an account for our daughter, yeah. right? That's what it would be for. Yeah. And they just completely sabotaged that, you know. Dumb and bitch. So, you know, this is the, this is the, the limited thinking person I was with, and that's why I'm not with her no more, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, hindsight's twenty twenty. Sure. Anyways, um, so I've written three, as far as I'm concerned, three publications. Uh, I'm actually writing a fourth one now. I was actually writing five more, um, but I decided to compare put them all together into one uh, into one book. It might be two books when it's all said and done. So what you're going to hear about today is American Badass. Um, in the future, what we're going to do is, you know, hopefully we can talk about these other stories that I'm writing. Um, so you'll actually hear them before they're actually 
published, right? Uh, oh, from yeah. my, own, my own words, which is kind of cool. And these stories will be from uh, the time from really from 2011 to present. So, you know, in the last eight years, you know, I've done quite a bit. Um, and uh, it just seems like no matter where I go, I just can never seem to avoid the craziness, man. I find myself in all these weird situations sometimes. I'm like, can I just be like a normal guy? And, uh, you know, and, it, and I'll just give you a quick, you know, a little glimpse of that, what I'm talking about. You know, I went everywhere from being, you know, a bodyguard for a multimillionaireist, a 31 year old multimillionaireist in Los Angeles. We had gangbangers trying to kill her. They stole a million dollars with a jewelry and she fell in love with me to, uh, you know, I'm going to go put take care of a dude that uh, in Turkey that did something in Singapore to, you know, moving, sneaking guys out of, out of the Middle East that were trapped without a passport, you know, basically called what's called the velvet cage. Um, so I did a lot of other things right in that time, which are kind of cool. Um, very, you know, could land me in jail. Some still can land me in jail. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> anyways, there's a story. There's even a story about that. Yeah. Um, there's even a story there. Apparently, you know, when I, when I got here a couple in, in June, July, I came back after in that, from the U.S. You know, I was told that uh, there's people looking to arrest me because I had a, um, a red shading with Interpol. Like, ah, shit, you know. And uh, that turned out to be bullshit. But uh, um, we think it was either some competitors, some business competitors, yeah. and and there's actually terrorists living right here where I'm at now in Bali. There's actually real terrorists, yeah. ISIS fighters, Yemen yeah. fighters, Yemenis, they're here, yeah. right? Even though nobody wants to talk about that, but they're here. Um, so we thought, well, maybe they're trying to set me up for something. Um, I know who they are. They know who I am. But anyways, um, so, all right, those, a little bit about my background, about my books. So more books sure. are coming, but today what we want to do is just talk about uh, a couple of chapters. The first chapter is American Badass. And, uh, you know, and, and, uh, I kind of give you, a, you know, I'll give you the my but, version, the, but, the the written, a spoken version of what actually happened, which I think, uh, you know, I think I'll try to keep it. Uh, uh, I try to keep it on, you know. There's some, there's some, some. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, man? <sighs> anyway, you'll be, there's some surprises in it, and but, uh, I'll try to keep it. Surprises before for before <laughs> we keep before we keep going in. You can't yeah. me- you can't mention it, but for my generation, anyone that's ever played Call of Duty Black Ops one and two, on the everyone that play- you you won't know this, Dale, but everyone that plays the video game, I, you know, I know you know what I'm talking about. On the left side, the beginning of each mission, when all the words appear and then they get redacted, you'll always see that there is a unit of a certain government organization, and. That's the one Dale was in. That's the same one if you read Annie Jacobson's book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish. She went on Joe Rogan did an episode specifically about that uh, division Dale was in. And it's also, if you look up the exact inspiration for Ian Fleming's James Bond, that is the inspiration. Dale can't legally acknowledge it, but that's what you're in. But the point is, is that is the tippy top of the tippy top of the tippy top so this isn't just dale you know another another navy seal book no this is legitimate dale ted eye legitimate black ops dale can't say it i can say it on another episode and i will but dale can't say it but i just want i want because everyone that everyone that like me that doesn't know a lot about the military they just okay okay delta yeah black hawk down the top and it's like 
No, like it really, I, I just need to set the stage for like just who you are and what you are in. It is, it's not that you got to the NBA championship. You were on the dream team in the U.S. Olympics with Michael Jordan and Larry Bird. Like, again, you can't legally say it, but I just wanted to sort of really, I want everyone listening to appreciate just who the fuck you are. You come on here and we shoot the shit. We talk about killing Antifa and all that good stuff. But I just wanted for everyone to know that. You can't say it, and aside from that, sorry for just jerking you off, but okay, let's get into it. (laughs) Well, I'll say this, right, so real quick. Um, It's not a mystery. It's a secret that I cannot keep, right, because when I was working for this group, this organization overseas, my buddies would see me and go, hey. What are you doing? What is your what? What do you, you know? They why are you using different? And they knew who I was working yeah. for because this camp belonged to this group, and like they knew that, right? Yeah. And so we everybody knew that, but they didn't have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, yeah. saying they would never mention that to the world, right? Yeah. So it actually happened on on national television. Um, I never told nobody, but these guys knew where I was, and they didn't know that they couldn't say that. And on national TV, they told the host who didn't. Never passed it by me, and in the beginning of the show on national television, I was introduced as former Delta Force operator, former ABC operative, <laughs> Dale Comstock. I go, well, there goes that job. Well, I'll go, never get that one back. That one's done. That's gone. You can't yeah. put. You can't unring that bell. I remember the. No, when, I couldn't. I know. I, I'm thinking, how the hell does she know that? Well, it's not when people when people don't know, and they know that I was over there. You know, you. Well, I'm well known, right? It's and like, so, yeah. especially in the special force community. So, yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, it's like anyway, the, the first time you came on, I brought that up. I was like, so I love hierarchies and stuff. You know, what's the best, you know, championship, Olympics, what's above? And I've just always loved hierarchies. And I remember I was like, Dale, have you ever heard of uh, this thing? I don't know if you know about it. And everyone go back and look at it. It's in episode 50. I'll, I'll find the timestamp for it. But I'm asking you about it, and your face is lighting up. And I'm like, oh, you know about it. And you go, yeah, 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 yeah. We won't talk about that. I thought you were just being funny. And you can actually go back. And it's the first time Dale and I ever spoke. And it's Dale going, yeah, 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 I know. We won't talk about that. And I was laughing because I thought you were doing the whole, like, if I told you I had to shoot you. But you go, we won't talk about that. And I'm smiling and you're just staring at me. And then it dawns on me that we're actually not going to talk about that. So I was like, do you hear my voice crack? I was like, okay. And I just kind of changed the subject. But, um, yeah, it's uh, you can, but you can't. It's Obviously, I can. But it's the point is is Dale is the American badass. So uh, yeah, let's get into it. Well, yeah. So what makes me the American badass? Well, actually, it's not because I am a badass. Um, I'm a I'm a badass because I try to do the right thing. I try to be a good father. Um, I try to be a good husband. Even though I suck in that department, I'll be the first one to admit it. Um, but I try to be a good a good patriot, a good human being. I try to do the right thing. I try to do the best that I can in everything yeah. I do in life. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you know that's what makes anybody a badass, right? And so that's what makes me an American, and that's why I think you know. Actually, I didn't even call myself a badass. That that uh, moniker was bestowed on yeah. me from guys like Chris Kyle. Yeah. Um, actually, from the first NBC show. When we had introduced ourselves, um, I remember I introduced my... I still remember the birds, too, you know. Um, retired Master Sergeant Dale Comstock, United States Army, the Delta Force. And when I said that, I could hear all the guys in the background going, American, badass, yeah. American, you're badass, badass, you know. 
I'm like, whoa. And that stuck, right? So yeah. they can monitor it, right? And so I decided, well, that'd be kind of a cool, yeah. cool title in the book. So uh, anyways, so that brings us to the book. Um, so the first chapter of the book is called Of Lions and Lambs, right? And uh, and so what I want to do is kind of, you know, paint this. Uh, I'll just paint the picture for you, the scenario. And then um, in my words, I'll tell you the story, what happened. And, and uh, there's a reason why I started with this uh this particular chapter. Um, this chapter actually, when I wrote it, happened to me. Re- it's the last thing that happened to me prior to me writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, man, this this is like you know ubiquitous. It's it would fit in this book book perfectly, um, even though it's a tragedy. Um, but there's um, there's lessons learned from it. So uh, so remember when I talk about the book, the book was to inspire and motivate young men, right? To be better versions of themselves, stopping his little, you know, snotty nosed kids, afraid to get their hair wet, skinny tight jeans, you know, freaking, you know, man up, right? You can do all the cool stuff. You, you know, you can play video games and, you know, but you can still, you know, man up, right? So, um, so anyways, um, there, there's a purpose for this story. So what happened was this, um, just imagine this. It was a very cold night. It was probably about 27, 29 degrees out in the desert. And I'm standing out there. I got another guy with me and we're on the radios and we, we get the call that we have a vehicle that's down in the desert. One of our guys is out there and he's, he's stuck and we can't get to him, but he needs it. He needs extraction right away. So what happens was, I call in an exfil bird and basically I give him the grid coordinates. I say, look, this is where you need to go. Um, we have a guy out here. He needs to be, re- you know, he needs to be recovered, right? Search and rescue. So as we're standing there, I'm communicating with, uh, with the guy, his name's Travis. And Travis, hey, Travis is still, um, birds inbound. He's probably about five mics out, stand by, you know, prepare for exfil for recovery, right? Roger that, um, Dale, stand by. So, um, as we're standing there, remember this, it's freaking cold outside, man. I mean, it's really cold. And I just had on a thin jacket because I really wasn't planning on being outside that long. Um, and we initially were inside of a vehicle, you know, it was warm there, but we had to get out, right? We had to get out for security listen to the radios and, and, uh, can't see shit from inside the vehicle, right? So you gotta get out. So we're standing there and, uh, I could see the bird coming in and, Basically, what the bird was going to do was an orbit, basically a counterclockwise orbit. It was, I would estimate it was about two miles out. Um, I, I identified the bird. I saw the red and green strokes on it, right? It was blanking. Um, you know, is that tactical? Yes or no? It depends on where you're at. But anyways, he was about two miles out. He was going to fly a counterclockwise, or, counterclockwise orbit. Um, basically, PID or what we call, you know, PID is basically positively identify, you know, the uh, um, the extraction point and uh, get his bearings, so to speak, the pilot was. So he flies around and we're still, you know, me and my partner still kind of yapping and everything. We're telling him, Travis on the radio, you know, okay, birds, you know, come around, he's on his final leg, stand by, prep your gear, um, get ready to get out of it. Because as we're standing, I'm looking out there, man, and it, if you can just imagine, the sky was dark. It was pitch black, right? There's no moon. All you had was starlight. Um, the desert sand was kind of 
kind of light, right? And, you know, and when you see the light desert sand, you know, you can see the green sagebrush and bushes out there. And all I could imagine was, man, there's probably Taliban behind every one of those freaking bushes waiting for that bird to come down low and they're going to take it out with an RPG because that was standard practice, man. Yeah. It got to be standard practice. After Mogadishu, yeah. uh, I was there in Mogadishu and, um, you know, I can tell you that, you know, when the, when the, you know, we called them skinnies back in, in, yeah. in Mogadishu, right? Yeah. Yeah. When the skinnies figured out, hey, we could shoot down a hovering Blackhawk with an RPG, Hit the back. you know, that became, yeah, you know, that became, you know, the MO, you know, that became in vogue. Let's do this all the time, yeah. right? It works. Yeah. Um, now, I don't want to mislead anybody either. I said Blackhawk down. Um, I was there, but I was, I came in. As a, as a reinforcing squadron mm-hmm. um, to, to reinforce C squadron when they got freaking basically, you know, they got pretty hammered over there. So, yeah. um, but we were there. I still ran some ops, but uh, just, you know, I don't want to, anybody go, oh, cops, you're full of shit. No, I'm not full. I'm just, I want to make sure I'm for accuracy. Yeah. Um, everybody understands that. So, um, so going back to the, you know, the present story. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking, I'm thinking, man, you know, even in Afghanistan, they were, you know, sh- they were shooting down Blackhawks and helicopters, Apaches. You know, with RPGs, if the birds were low enough and they were flying slow enough or hovering, they stood a good chance of getting taken out. Um, so that's all I could think about was, man, you know, freaking, they're probably all out there hiding behind the bushes, you know, waiting and waiting. They could hear the bird flying around. They know we got a, a vehicle that's broke down out here. we got a guy stuck out in the field. Um, you know, they might do that. So I'm standing there and I could see the helicopter coming in. And... He's actually flying from, you know, let's say four o'clock to ten o'clock. That was his uh, his heading. He's about two hundred feet above ground level, and my estimation about eighty knots. Okay, now as I'm looking at him at his four o'clock, about three hundred meters, it was very flat desert, and then it just dropped off into a canyon, right? Mm-hmm. A wadi, a large wadi, um, and it was about hundred feet down, at least hundred feet down, maybe a little bit further. So I'm watching the bird, and all I can see is the, the strobe. I can't see anything. I just see red, green flashes, boop, 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 right? And I can hear the rotor blade, and I let Travis know. Travis, you know, um, he was inbound. You know, one mic out, stand by, right? Roger that, comp stop. And then uh, all of a sudden, this helicopter is flying a nice flat trajectory. There's a 45-degree angle nosedive straight down to this canyon like, like a rock. Yeah. Right? It doesn't fall straight down. It does a nosedive just down into this canyon. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm counting in my head 1,000, 2,000. I don't know why I do that, but when shit like that always yeah. happens, I start counting 1,000, 2,000. I'm trying to figure out times, you know, I guess, on track time. And so he goes down and he goes down into this canyon. My thought was, okay, maybe he's going to do like a dynamic flare, yeah. come up, you know, quick dynamic flare and then hover low and sit down, you know, trying to, you know, uh, be invasive so he doesn't get shot down, you know, whatever, right? Um, whatever. So he la- he does that. He goes down and three seconds go by, nothing. And it was then at that time I realized, I, heard, I thought I heard a crunching sound, like metal crunching, right? But you got to remember, this is down at Wadi, at least 300 meters away. Um, and it's cold as shit out there too, right? So three seconds went by and I realized he ain't coming back up. Mm-hmm. He ain't coming back up. He should have already come back up because his trajectory took him down this water. If he didn't come up, he would have slammed right into the wall. Right. And so 
I knew something was wrong, and I and I remember this. You know, Travis, he was a seal. He calls me, go, hey man. He goes, Tom Sock. He goes, that bird just crashed. And I go, Roger that, man. Um, you know, we got we got a we got a catastrophe here. So I, I didn't even stop, man. I was already running, and I had on a coal miner's light on my head, right? And I turned it on, and that's uh, just so I wouldn't trip all over the place. So I'm hauling ass. I run down into the wadi. Get down to the bottom, and uh, sure shit, man, it had crashed. Done. Crew, <clears throat> um, everybody on board was uh, was cat, you know, was dead, was killed. Um, and I remember when I got down there, one of the guys was a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and uh, I remember holding him in my arms as he died, thinking, "This is not supposed to happen here." This is not supposed to happen here, and uh, and that's a, that was a tough thing to get my head around because for everybody out there listening, this actually happened in the desert, about sixty miles north of Los Angeles in February. All right, in 2013, 2012. Yeah, not 2013. 2013. Not, not in the middle uh, of bumfuck, not in the Middle East. Yeah. Right here. What happened was this was actually a TV show um, that, that this happened on. All right. It was a TV show by Discovery Channel called Lone Operator. It was actually Joe Teddy, you know, myself, and a guy named Mike Donatelli. Mike Donatelli was a former Ranger in Green Beret. He was in Delta. He was an operator, but he worked as a support guy in the unit, you know, but basically, um, you know, he was uh, he was a pipe hitter, man. He's good friends with uh, Joe, good friends with me. Um, so what happened, so let me just kind of back it up now, right? So all right, got you, get you out of the Afghan mindset, the combat mindset. I wanted to, I wanted to start like this because we think that, you know, we tend to think that you know, terrible things like that only happen, you know, over there and other places, you know, and, and it doesn't happen in, in the world that we live in America, right? In Hollywood, it's all staged, okay? Uh, I can tell you it's not all staged. It is staged, but it is dangerous. Even on Stars and Stripes, Terry Crews, damn near drowned. I had to go save Terry Crews from drowning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something. It's like trying to pull up a ship anchor, man. I, you know, like, holy crap. The guy, you know, man, guy has no buoyancy. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, so here's what happened on that. So what happened? I, after I, re- you know, I retired. Um, Discovery Channel, they saw me, you know, I, I did well on that. NBC said, hey, man, we're interested in you, blah, blah, blah. And it was at that point I started realizing maybe I've got a career in Hollywood, okay? Um, you know, I like Terry Crews would always tell me, you know, you the camera loves you, man. The camera loves you, right? And, uh, and then I started getting a lot of feedback. People told me if I moved to L.A., I could be on television all the time. I could be the next Danny Trejo, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I got to be honest with you, man, I, you know, Hollywood's a bunch of fake stuff, man, and I'm not a faker, man. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> no big substance. cesspool of artificial shit. Yeah, you know, there's no substance there, and I tell you what turned me off was being on the set with these Hollywood celebrities. Okay, I'm not talking about Terry Crews. I'm talking about some of the other TV shows I did, and the attitudes of some of these celebrities 
was, you know, it's like they didn't have any home training. They were just disrespectful. They were like, just, it's all about me. Where's my chair at? You know, give me this, fetch me that. Like, you pompous son of a bitches, man. You They're know, pretty, and I, yeah. I just didn't want to be around people like that, yeah. man. It's it, that whole culture is not the culture I'm from, man. They're, you know, remember, we've talked about this before. I grew up in a military culture as a kid. My father was in the army for 20 years. I, I followed his footsteps, you know. Uh, my son, by the way, for those who listen, he's also a Green Beret. Um, he's been in about nine years now. He's also a Ranger. Um, you know, my sister was in Navy. Her husband was in Navy. My uncle's in the Army. You know, I can go on all day long. Um, the military culture is what I grew up in. And so when you take a guy like me and you dip me into Hollywood, it's like, man, this isn't this doesn't feel right, you know? And, uh, and there's more, you know, in some of the other secret, you know, podcasts we do, I'll, I'll talk more about my Hollywood experiences on some other levels, but, uh, um, just how crazy it was. So anyways, um, so what happened was, you know, I got called, we we did, we're doing the show. It was me, Joe, and, and it was Joe's basically brainchild. He invited me to come on, be a co-host with him, Mike Dontelli, be a co-host. And basically the three of us were going to create this show called Lone Operators. Kind of like a, a Jason Bourne type thing where, you know, these two guys would go through this, this uh, course, uh, not really competing, but it'd be like a side-by-side comparison. They're going to have to go through all these events, you know, and then at the end, see if they're, you know, they qualify to be, you know, a lone operator, right? And it would have been things like, you know, um, going through like you know the desert scenario, you know, freaking humping out of the desert with a rucksack in the middle of the night, going into Los Angeles, you know, um, you know, blending in, going into a bar, you know, figuring out a way how to get some money to get this to go there, and finally, you know, find a car, pop the trunk, and mm-hmm. recover the uh, the precious cargo, right, and all this, you know. So is this kind of stuff? Right? In fact, uh, the first guy that we had to get was a Green Beret. And uh, when I say we had to go get him, um, he didn't know what he was up for, right, for the show. He didn't know all the nuances of it. Basically, what he did was check into a motel, and he was told, just go check in the motel, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, tomorrow we'll pick you up, and then we'll start the show, blah, blah, blah. So he goes in, locks the room, goes to bed, goes to sleep. We wait till he was asleep. And then uh, uh, three of us, four of us, basically picked the locks on his hotel room door, right? <laughs> Actually picked it. We didn't have the keys. And, uh, you know, we broke in and we jumped him inside of his bed and, uh, you know, and, and, and tied him up, you know, and, and gagged him and everything and hauled him off in a van and, and then drove out of the desert with him and kicked him out the door in a, in a, in a gas station and he had to get out of these fuck scuffs that he was in. And, and so the scenario started like that, right? So it was really a cool show. It had a lot of potential. And, uh, but then this... Then the, it's, we went into this catastrophe, this tragedy, yeah. which was basically um, so. This one particular scene, so you know, is out in the desert and it was freaking cold. Like I said, it was really about 27, 29 degrees out there, and uh, we were basically camped out on this in this desert area. In fact, it was the same area where um, years and years ago they filmed um, what was that movie, the TV show uh, with the soldiers. Uh, It'll come to me here in a minute, man. But uh, the Vietnamese kid got his head chopped off along with the, the lead actor by Rotorblade. Um, yeah, it rings a bell. I don't know the name of it. Yeah, but man. Yeah, I knew it and I just not forgot it. But anyways, it was the same exact area, right? It's, there's a ranch up there that Hollywood uses a lot for a lot of the desert train, uh, not train, but filming stuff like that. So anyways, we're out there. Um, 
we'd been filming all day, you know, doing this and that and that. And what we were going to do at, at 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning was the next thing was we had a seal, this one the seal, we had a green brain seal. The seal was going to be in a car and uh, he was going to be driving through the desert like a madman, right? We're going to be following with cameras, you know, from, from afar. Um, and basically, um, you know, then the vehicle would break down, right? Which goes to the next phase. So, so let me kind of set it up a little bit. So, um, we were going to have a, we had an OH, um, a Ranger, Bell Ranger helicopter, right? I want to call it OH 58, but it's, it was civilian helicopter. So it's a Bell Ranger. Um, and, uh, it arrived like at, I don't know, maybe five o'clock that afternoon, right? And the, in landed. We we're all, everybody's eating food. There's probably about 40, 50 crew members out there, you know, for the, for the cameras and stuff. And then, uh, <clears throat> we had to go over and get a crew briefing or a pilot briefing from the helicopter, right? Because we knew we were going to, use his helicopter uh, uh, in the morning, early in the morning. So basically he gave us a safety brief. He goes, okay, you know, he gave us a talk about the helicopter, blah, blah, blah. Um, he said, listen, okay, you know, if anything happens, you know, the helicopter goes down, he goes, stay away because there's going to be jet fuel, spinning, flying things, you know, maybe fire and stuff. Just get away. Don't, don't do nothing, sure. right? Um, so he's giving the whole safety brief. I remember when he gave us that part, I'm like, okay, this thing crashes. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be just standing there. Yeah. Going, okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, well. so, but, but he said it right. And everybody was like, okay, okay. And, um, so it gives a whole briefing and, uh, pretty detailed. And the guy's wearing a, he's, I would say he was probably close to 60 years old. Um, but he didn't look unhealthy or anything, but he's about 60 years old. And, uh, he was wearing a green flight suit. So my assumption right away was he was a former pilot, right? probably a veteran pilot you know and, and now he's flying helicopters for hollywood right and so what he told us was he was going to do a daylight flight he's going to fly the route that he's going to fly in the, in, at night right so he's going to day visual of it you know and, and uh, knew all the you know waypoints and checkpoints were and things like that you know and the terrain features <clears throat> okay roger that sounds like a good idea and then uh, and they said okay then at night we're going to do this it's going to be three of us and it was only one pilot by the way just one pilot right it would be one pilot it was gonna be the cameraman and it was gonna be me yours truly three of us on this helicopter right the cameraman was gonna watch me throw a rucksack out at the seal on the ground right the seal thought he's gonna get picked up and fly away and you know a heated helicopter you know and we get to start again tomorrow yeah but actually he didn't know the script was we're gonna fly out there hover and i'm gonna toss him a rucksack a backpack oh right out of the way you know <laughs> <laughs> that away, you know. That away, you know? so, bitch. Um, and so that was the plan, right? Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, okay, got it, Roger that. And then everybody's like nodding their head, and I, I'm like, well, I got a question, sir. I said, um, tonight when you're flying, I said, um, I'm assuming you're flying on night on NVGs or you know on, on nods, night vision goggles, right? Night vision goggles or night optic devices, right? I think I said nods. I might have said, you know, MVGs, whatever. I didn't say, you know, I just used nomenclature. I assumed he knew what that meant, wearing a green flight suit. And he just looked at me and goes, what are those? Oh, <laughs> oh, Jesus. I said, uh, you know, night vision goggles, night optical device, devices, you know? And he goes, oh, no, I, I don't know how to use those. I don't fly with those. I go, well, how are you going to fly? You fly on white light? And he's like, Oh, it's flying instruments, right? In the, in the horizon. And uh, now bear in mind, it's pitch black out there. There's no zero illumination. It's darker, darker yeah. shit, right? Yeah. And uh, 
So that was his answer. I'm like, I know, I like. And he goes, no, he goes, I'm gonna fly during the day. That way, another route, you know, blah blah blah. Get my checkpoints, waypoints, easy peasy. All right, you know, I'm not a pilot. I flew on a helicopter before. I'm sure. not a pilot. Sure. And uh, and so. I said, you know, I'm like, who am I to tell you how to do your job? You know, apparently you got a plan, so yeah. you're here. Yeah. You know, they're paying you big bucks. Yeah. Um, and you're by yourself, so somebody trusts you. Yeah. And so, anyways, um, okay. So <clears throat> that morning, um, they had the area set up, and it was probably about, uh, I don't know, 10, 5, 10 kilometers away from the MSS, the mission support site, the area where all the cameras and, the, you know, the trucks and the vehicle, everything was parked, you know. Well, away from that position, we had this was the, the point where we we're going to do the filming. And uh, actually, the only thing they had out there was a camera and a light that was on some type of a telescopic ladder, right? And essentially, the camera guy would climb way up on this thing, which was actually pretty high. If I remember right, it was at least 30, 40 feet up, mm-hmm. right? Um, like a fireman's ladder. He was way up there in the desert, had one, one white light aimed out of the desert where this car was going to be driving and he had the camera and uh i think all told there were two people out there the camera guy and maybe an assistant right and uh and then off at a distance about 300 meters was me right and the producer now i said earlier i was supposed to be on the helicopter so here's what happened right so as we're reading the script, high speed driving, off road, blah, 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 you know, <clears throat> and uh, the three of us are standing there talking, and it's like, okay, Mike is going to be narrating. <clears throat> he's going to be standing there with the producer by the car, right? And he's going to be talking about the follies of high speed driving in the desert at night with no lights on, blah, 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 right? And, uh, and all the issues that go along with that. Well, Mike doesn't know anything about off road driving, it just so happens. But I'm a high speed and technical and drive high speed and technical driving instructor. Of course, and off road driver, right? Of course, so that you was are. right side in my wheelhouse, and uh, and we all recognized that right away. And so the decision was made immediately between the three of us. Dale, why don't you go out and do the narration? You know what to talk about, right? Um, you're not making it up. You actually talk about it. And Mike was like, "Yeah, I'll dump the rucksack. I mean, even a monkey can just throw a rucksack out of a helicopter." Mm-hmm. So okay. All right, sounds good for the betterment of the show. That's probably a good plan, right? We all agreed on that. Um, and so the irony of it was, after we said all that, the weirdest thing came over me. I had this sense of foreboding. I, sh- I shit you not. Yeah. The sense of foreboding came over me. It was like the weirdest thing. And it must have came over everybody. Because Joe says, don't worry, Mike. Nothing's going to happen. Me and Dale been enough crashes and helicopter crashes. <laughs> we got you covered. Nothing's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, why would we even think that? Because that's freaking weird. Yeah. Right. And then I just thought, well, we'll just, you know, whatever. We're just overplaying this. Sure. Right. And so kind of dismissed it. Well, we're turning into, right, we're so, turning into Hollywood bitches already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Man. It's like, you've been more dangerous shit than this. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? Yeah. I've been in crashes before and I got right back on the, on the helicopter and rode it, you know, who cares, right? So it's just, it is what it is, right? I wasn't afraid to fly. I mean, fly all the damn time. So anyways, um, so then what happened was, all right, three o'clock in the morning rolls around. Me and the producer go out in the field, we're driving Suburban, we stop, get out. Okay, this is our position here. We got, we got the, the microphone, the camera stuff going on with us. 
you know, we got, you know, we can see the cameras and our meters out on the desert. We, you know, the shields out there driving around, you know, he's doing like figure eights in a, in a regular car, right? In the desert, right? And, uh, and then Mike gets on the helicopter, you know, we hear across the radio, you know, they're, they're now airborne. Okay, roger that. So here we go, you know, and then it's time for me to start the narration, right? The seal's driving around in, in circles, you know, whatever. And then uh, I'm talking about, you know, you know, how dumb that is because, you know, driving at night with no yeah, lights yeah, on yeah. in a road car in the desert, you're going to peel the tires off, you know, this is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. You know, go figure it's a seal, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, whatever, right? I'm just, I'm just pouring it on, right? Yeah. And, uh, and making this, you know, like making people think, oh, yeah, you know, break the beads on the tires and, you know, you have no lights and you bum, 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 What happens if, you know? And, and so, sure. um, and then boom, you know, he's cued, vehicle stops. He calls me, you know, hey, Dale, this is Travis. You know, my vehicle's broke down. Um, you know, I, I need uh, I need extraction, man. Get me out of here. And so I, I relate to the bird. It was Mike that I was talking to on the radio. I said, Mike, this is Dale. Um, you know, we need uh, we need extraction, man. Bring the bird in and recover Travis, right? So it was all scripted. And, uh, you know, I probably didn't use exactly those words, but uh, it was a scripted conversation, right? And, uh, and I actually made, we actually made a lot of it up, most of it up as we went along. But, uh, so the bird flies around, just like, you know, I mentioned earlier in a counterclock uh, orbit about two miles out, red and green flashing lights, everything's going right, you know, birds now tracking four to eight or four to 10. And I call Travis and Travis is Dale, x birds inbound, standby for recovery. Roger that, Dale, standby. And then I tell Mike, you know, the, uh, you know, passengers standing by at the Xville site, you know, the LZ and, uh, ready to go. Roger that. And then the helicopter crashes, right? It literally does a nose dive at 45 degrees down into this can. I've never, it didn't slow down. Um, it, oh, it was almost like a rock falling at a 45 degree angle fast. Yeah. Holy shit. There were no sparks. There were no flames no weird sounds coming from it like you know something broke and it's gonna crash it just went 45 degrees down into this freaking canyon and i started counting 1000 2000 3000 and again i'm like man i remember the producer brian he's like dale did that helicopter just crash and when he said that I just took off with a dead run. Turned my turned my coal miner's light on and just started running 300 meters in the direction where I saw the helicopter last. And he's running behind me as fast as he can. He's got his light on. And he's freaking out. He's a civilian, right? And uh, he's the producer for Discovery Channel. And uh, as we're running, I'm you know hauling ass across the desert trying not to fall over the sagebrush and stuff. And right before we get to the uh, precipice, right to the edge, before I get to it. He's like, Dale, he goes, what do I do? What do, what do I, what am I supposed to do? I, I don't know what to do. This has never happened before. I don't know what to do, right? He goes, we're running, he's saying all this to me, you know? And he's like, tell me what to do. And I could tell almost in his voice, he didn't want to go over that edge down in that, in that you know, in that mm-hmm. chasm with me. Yeah. And, um, I could sense the fear, man. Yeah. You know, the fear of what the unknown, like what is going to be downside the mouth of madness, man. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I got to be honest with you, man. 
I just try to remain as stoic as I could. Yeah. But inside my heart, I'm thinking, oh, God, this is not going to be pleasant, right? Yeah. And, um, but we're, we're still running, right? So this is happening, like, really fast. And so right before we got to the edge, I realized he'll do me more good if he can run back to the MSS yeah. and collect everybody. So I told him, I said, go back to the site. I said, get everybody. I want blankets, fire extinguishers, aid bags, radios, flashlights. Right, I'm, I don't know. You know how I'm, I'm saying all this shit as I'm running, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, ah, 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 you know, and yeah. I'm huffing and puffing at this point, but I'm, I'm spitting it all out, and, uh, and he vectors off, and he does go. He goes the other way. He doesn't come down there. And I, just, I go over the edge, and when I went over the edge, it was pitch black, like down in this canyon, even darker. Um, so I'm sliding down the side of this hill, um, trying not to go head over heels, and I. Just like surfing down the hill and all the dirt and shit. And I get to the bottom and I'm huffing and puffing. And I stop and I'm, I'm listening. I'm trying to see something, right? I'm looking, I'm scanning. And finally I realize I can't hear nothing because I'm breathing so hard. So I take a deep breath and, just, and I'm listening. Yeah. And I don't hear nothing, man. Nothing, right? And usually in cold weather, especially in the desert, sound travels. Really, yeah, really well. I, I ain't hearing, I ain't hearing Jack, man. It's like nothing out there, right? And uh, so, I said, okay, I think it's coming this way. Go that way, right? So I, I, I hook the left. I run about another twenty feet, and um, next thing I know, I stop again about twenty feet up, and this time. I smell JP4, mm-hmm. jet fuel, jet fuel, right? And my pants from the knees down are soaked from where I was running through the bush. And apparently it was soaked. And now my pants are getting soaked with jet fuel, right? So I knew I was close. I was at the impact, you know, ground zero, man. And um, so I knew the debris field, I'm in the debris field. It's gotta be going that way from when I remember the helicopter the way it was flying, right? So I remember, Scan around. I think I moved up another 10 feet and I stopped with my light. I scanned to my left, and that's when I saw the first clue, right? And it was about a two foot section of the tailbone was laying there. And then close by it was a piece of the, uh, you know, the, the transmission housing, just a small piece of the shell, right? It was laying there. And uh, so I was like, okay, <laughs> without a doubt this thing did crash yeah. and it's here somewhere right yeah. and uh and it's a mess mm-hmm. so i continue scanning i start scanning i i don't think i found anything bigger than a shoebox of that helicopter i mean it just completely just blew up you know disintegrated man yeah. and um so i scan again i scanned about my one o'clock about 15 meters i see the first body and it was the pilot and he was laying, you can imagine from my perspective, he was laying face down, feet away from me, shoulders towards me, right? Okay. With his head down. Okay. And from what I could see from my angle and my distance, it looked like he was laying there and his head was rolled under his chest, um, face down. Without a doubt, it was odd because I recognized the green flight suit. So I run over there um, and I'm just in a hurry, man, and I'm just trying to do something, right? I'm not prepared for any of this shit. And, uh, you know, 
medical training will tell you, you know, don't fucking move the guy because you might have a, you know, compromised cord, whatever, right? And I'm thinking, you know what? Um, if that's all he's got, he's lucky. Yeah. Um, but right now, this ain't looking good. So I, I reach him by his shoulders, and my, my thinking is, I'm going to try to roll him over on his back because I can see his back. There's nothing sure. protruding out of his back. Sure. It's not bleeding, right? Uh, I can see the green flies. So I'm going to roll him over on his belly. And I do. When I roll him over, um, that's when I, like, almost lost my shit. Um, he had no head. He had been decapitated. Right? And holy shit. You know, and now he's covered with stuff. Yeah. Blood, my matter. And uh, I lay him on his back. And I just kind of stood up straight and kind of gasped. Like, whoa. Wasn't, wasn't prepared for that. Sure. At all. Right? Um, so I remember standing up thinking, God damn, man, you know, you go through this, you know, it's hard to explain, but when you experience something like that and you're not ready for it, you're like, it takes a second to kind of like get your composure back. And I remember thinking to myself, I remember thinking back to some words from my OTC instructor. What's OTC? The operator training course when I went through Delta Force, right? Um, it's seven months of training. It's part of the selection process. It's very rigorous. It's very tough. A lot of people don't make it through that, even though they made it through the initial selection piece. And uh, we had this one instructor named <laughs> called Mad Max. Yeah. Um, Mad Max was about five foot eight, little short guy, um, this big red bushy mustache like Yosemite Sam, and uh, just a gnarly little guy. Man, he's a good dude. He was always yelling at us, but he yelled at us for the right reasons. And uh, he would always tell us something that I've never forgotten, ever, and I use it all the time. He would say, do something, even if it's wrong, goddammit, but do something. Run the situation, don't, don't let, let it run, run you. you. Yeah. Run the situation, don't let it run you. And those words popped in my head. Run the situation, don't let it run you. Get back into it, man. So, all right, it's done. This guy's done. I still got two more out here somewhere. And I, I started scanning to my right, scanned to my four o'clock position. And uh, that's where I saw Mike. Again, about another 15 meters. He's laying there and he's laying on his back. So I run over to him and he's still alive, um, which was even more amazing. So I got to him. He wasn't conscious. His, his breathing was very slow very deep um he was in the final throes of his life and uh he was in bad bad shape i mean bad shape i won't go into the, the gory details but i can tell you this he he looked very bad and bleeding a lot of blood um i mean it was literally just it was like blood just running across the desert floor behind his head like just streaming away from him holy shit, right and uh, he's bleeding out but I saw he still had, he was able to put air in his lungs. <clears throat> so, and he was soaked. He was soaked in jet fuel. He was wearing a brown uh, fleece um, jacket. In fact, it was it was one of those, uh, it was part of a bear suit we used to get issued in the army, right? Big brown, well, they were so warm. So big brown fleece, you know? And he was wearing something like that. And uh, it was soaked in jet fuel. And the reason I know that, I was wearing gloves and I grabbed him to roll him to his side so I could clear his airway because he was choking on his blood, his teeth. It just, you know, I, I had to clear the sure. airway. So I, 
again, I kind of rolled him like a like a log on his side, down to two sides, so I threw him airway so he can get the blood out of his out and his throat. And uh, when I grabbed him with my my gloves were now soaked with jet fuel. Okay, well soaking wet. He was soaking wet. And um, so I'm kind of balancing him on his side and I'm talking to him. And I said, you know, I, I said whatever I could say, you know, not sure if he could hear me or not. Um, I remember telling him, hanging her brother, I'm here with you. You're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I got you, man. You, you, we're here, man. You know, I just, whatever, hang in there, man. Sure. It's going to be okay. You know? and I don't know if I said that to reassure him as much as to reassure me or both of us, right? Because again, I'm standing, I'm here without an aid bag. I don't know what to do anymore. I mean, I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, what you, this is a guy, I mean, I don't know that a team of surgeons could put these guys back together, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm like, shit, and I'm doing everything I can to hold them together and, uh, and whatever I could do. It seemed like time just started slowing down. Um, it, it really did. It just seemed like it was going on forever. And I'm still alone. There's nobody with me. Nobody, right? And so <clears throat> I remember thinking, okay, I've got two guys right now. I'm missing a third guy. He could be alive. He could be dying right now. I don't know. You know, I got a guy here that's that's dying. What do I? What am I going to do? Right. So, I remember yelling out as loud as I can to the desert night, man. You know, I've got two. I'm missing one. Somebody come and help me. Mm-hmm. Hoping that somebody was around to help me, right? In earshot, and nobody was. Nobody could actually hear me yelling. I was that far out alone. And so I'm, I got Mike kind of balanced. I'm kind of, I got my leg behind his back, kind of holding him up. I got my hands you know, around his waist and his body and his head. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do I stem the bleeding? It's a lot coming out of the back of his skull. Um, and then the weirdest shit happened. I kind of look up. And from the open desert, the open desert, right? When I got a coal miner's light on, I see a woman walk right, right at me and right past me within arm's reach. Literally, and she doesn't stop. She doesn't say anything. Nothing. She just comes out of the desert, walks right behind me, 15 feet. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, where's what's going on? It's just getting like crazier and crazier, right? It's like a damn freaking nightmare. Yeah. And then she stops, and I'm trying to orient my body so I can turn around and look to see where she's going, what's going on. And I heard her yelp out, just make this yelping sound, like a gasp, you know. And then she turned around and went right past me again, back out into the desert, into the open desert. There's nothing out there. It takes off. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. What is going on here? Is this yeah. like, was this like an angel? Yeah. Out of the night to help me? What was this, right? What's yeah. going on here, man? Am I, like, am I hallucinating? Yeah. So I, I, I look back and there's shit. There he is, man. There's the third man, right? The photographer, cameraman. And fuck. So I, I'm, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Okay. Mike, I'm going to be right back, brother. Hang in there, Mike. I'll be right back. I got to help this other guy. I'll be right back in case he's hearing me, right? Mm-hmm. And I roll him to the side, and I'm trying to keep him balanced, right? And then I get up, and I run back to the other guy. And um, 
again, I don't want to describe what was wrong with him because if his family ever hears sure. this, you know, it's not going to be good for them. But uh, I found him. And as soon as I saw him, I knew he was, I knew he was gone. Yeah. Um, it was like the most bizarre shit I've ever seen. You know, I mean, it's just unimaginable, you know. Yeah. Helicopter crashes are nasty. Yeah. Uh, they can be very nasty, man. And yeah. trust me, I've been in helicopter, I've been in some serious helicopter crashes. Uh, I'm even lucky to be here today. I've had, I've lost a lot of friends in them. And uh, man, the, you know, it's a, it's a flying piece of magnesium alloy aluminum that almost like shatters like glass when it breaks and burns, you know, uh, like magnesium. So, I, I recognized right away that there's nothing mm. I could do for this guy. There's yeah. <laughs> no way, right? So I didn't have to spend a lot of time dealing with him. But one thing I do remember is looking down at him. He's laying on his back. And the way he was laying was really kind of a weird position. He was laying on his back, but kind of like over a hump a little bit. So he kind of splayed backwards, looking straight at me with his eyes wide open. And uh, I can remember looking into his eyes and I'm like, that just, you know, yeah. Just, yeah. 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 That, that was nuts, right? So I turned around and ran back to Mike. I grabbed Mike and, uh, you know, I'm back, Mike. You know, I'm holding on to him and still nobody's here. Still nobody's here. Shit. We're probably at least five minutes into this uh, event. And uh, at least I can think of, I mean, you lose all track of time, but I know it had to have been, it had to have been some time, at least five minutes, right? And so about 30 seconds went by and I noticed Mike was slow. His breathing was getting slower and it just stopped. He was gone. There was nothing I could do to bring him. There was absolutely nothing I could do to bring him back. Even if I tried CPR, chest, chest compressions, his, his old torso was like a bag of potatoes and marbles. It was just crushed. Yeah. You know, there's no way I could get air into him. No way. It just the damage was just way too much. Um, there was nothing I could do to save his life. Absolutely nothing. Um, nothing, man. And I'm not. I'm not an idiot, you know. And I'm not uh, inexperienced at this stuff, you know. I've been. I've had a lot of training and you know medical training. I've seen a lot, and uh, I knew right there there's no way I can bring him back. There's nothing I can do for any of these guys, man. And so, what? As soon as he stopped breathing, he was gone. Probably within 10, 15 seconds. They had a medic, um, the EMT that was on the set, right? That was a requirement. He comes flying in with his aid bag. You know, he's a good dude. Um, but he comes flying like, like, you know, home plate with his bag, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, oh, dude. I said, look, we got three bodies, one, two, three. I said, they're all gone. But he did his job, you know, like medical shit was coming out. He was, yeah, he was yeah, going yeah. through his, you know, you know, his, um, surveys and stuff you know and uh i think it, it didn't take long for him to realize yeah yeah it's done. This, this is over right so um and i was just standing there i just stood up and i, I gotta tell you man i remember being so cold because i had this super thin jacket on i did not know this is going to turn into an all-morning event in, in 29 degrees worth of um you know desert air and uh I'm just freezing down. It was so cold. And so I'm standing there and I'm looking down at Mike. I look over at the pilot, you know, and, and then I look back at, you know, at the, at the cameraman, back at Mike. I remember thinking, 
that's supposed to be me. Yeah. That's supposed to be me, not him. Yeah. Right. And the reason really, um, you know, really had an effect on me was because think about this at the time, my wife is Hispanic. His wife was Hispanic. We both had the same number of kids, same ages, right? We were both special forces, both from the unit. We were both boxers. We boxed together, right? Um, you know, there was a lot of, we just got yeah. along really well. There was a lot of commonality there. And I'm thinking at the, at just the final second, the final minute, we decided to change seats. Yeah. Had we not done that, that would be me laying there right now, right? Yeah. And, uh, that's a hard thing to swallow, man. That's, yeah. you know, that's survivor's remorse, man. It's like, whoosh. It's a hard one, man. To, yeah. You know, even to this, it took me a long time to, to get over that, right? And I can't say I've ever really gotten over it. Um, so it wasn't long after that. Then everybody showed up. The fire trucks, you know, the, the sheriff's department, the highway patrol, you know, ambulances, uh, the FAA, and everybody else, man. It's like, holy hell. Um, you know, everybody showed up. And at that point, I realized, you know, there ain't nothing else I can do for these guys, you know. So we all leave, you know, me and Joe, we go back, and uh, Travis, um, the military guys, you know, we're sitting in the car down at the MSS with everybody, just trying to get their head around what happened. Everybody else is just totally shocked. You know, women and everybody's boohooing and crying there, you know, they've never been through anything like this. None of them, right? It's Hollywood. You know, everything's safe, you know, it's all fake, you know. This wasn't fake. <laughs> um, and so they got a little taste of my world, right? And Joe's world, Travis's world. They got a little taste of what the real world, you know, can be like. And, uh, it came to the set in Hollywood to remind them that, you know, <laughs> nobody gets out of this world alive, right? Yeah. And uh, it happens at any time, at any place. And um, so that, you know, anyways, that rolled over into all right, the whole the whole production's over. It's, that's it. It ain't, gonna, it ain't continuing ever. And uh, we all go back in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, we had a memorial service a couple days later. Um, there, you know, I had to go meet with the FFA reps, you know, and give them our, you know, our account of what, you know, what happened, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I remember the call was made to Joe's father, right, to tell him what happened. And uh, not Joe's father, but Mike's Mike, father. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, I remember Joe, you know, they eased the pain, goes, look, Matt, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention his name. So, look, you know, your son died quick, you know, it, he didn't know what happened, you yeah. know, it was over. Instantaneous, like that, right? And uh, I said, "Yeah, okay, I'm okay with that." And um, then um, this is actually this, this is where I met Alan West, Senator Alan West. Uh, he was staying in the same hotel, and a week earlier, I had met him. You know, saw him sitting downstairs, and got to know each other, started talking, and uh, actually invited me to be on one of the shows while I was in LA. You know, um, and then uh, this happened. You know, and I remember checking out the hotel and seeing Alan, I was like, Hey, you know, sir, this is what happened, you know? And he's like, Whoa, you know, but, uh, you know, it was over. So <clears throat> then, then I get a call from my management team. They're like, Hey, we need to talk, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. What's, what's going on? Well, you know, like anything else, the lawyers are involved now. The lawyers, yeah. 
lawyers are looking for looking for people to blame. Yeah, <laughs> they're looking for money, right? And, and I'm like, yeah, what's that got to do with me? <sighs> well, you and Joe were co-producers. You three made a decision. Fuck. You know, was that on the script? You know, like what? You know, I could see where this was going. <laughs> Go ahead and sue me. You know, I ain't got no damn money. You know, I, I said, this is bullshit. And, uh, and so that was brought up. And then, uh, and then I get a call. I get a call from the lawyers, um, you know, with, with uh, the crew. And the question is, hey, um, who made the decision, change seats, blah, 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 blah. And actually, it was his wife that called me. Like it was on speakerphone. I know the attorneys were listening in the back. Sure. Yeah, you know, it started going down. We started going down this road. I'm like, are you kidding me, man? Are you freaking kidding me? And uh, I said, look, I I told the truth. I said, this is what happened. This was a this was a collective decision for the betterment of the show. No objections. Nobody was forced to do anything. Nobody thought this would happen. Yeah. In fact, to this day, nobody knows why the helicopter crashed. Nobody. We don't know what happened. They have no, they could not come up with a, a conclusion. It was this or it was that. I believe, I believe it was pilot error. I believe something happened to the pilot. I don't know if he had a heart attack and he fell forward on that yoke and drove his nose down to that, into the ground. I don't know what happened. I didn't see anything come off that helicopter and all the recordings of the black box that goes on there. They didn't hear any. It's amazing what you can do, what they can do with a black box. With a black box, they can tell how fast, how many RPMs mm-hmm. the rotors are going, yeah, you know, the transmission, yeah. based on the sound as well, the sound that the helicopter's yeah. making. Mm-hmm. There, there's so many things they can register at one time and figure out exactly what's going on with this helicopter in the flight. They didn't find anything wrong with it, right? It's, it's a total mystery. Um, it's a total mystery, right? So then. Um, I'm thinking, man, is this what's going to happen to me now? You know, <laughs> is this what happens? You know, and so probably, I don't know, it wasn't long after that, I get a call from the from his, Mike's family. Um, in fact, it was his wife. When she called me, I thought, oh, God damn, you know, oh, my God, you know, what's, what's going to happen here now? Yeah. And she said, listen, Dale, she goes, um, we're gonna have we're gonna celebrate Mike's birthday anyways, right? And uh, he was up he was up from uh, in the Pennsylvania area. She's Cuban and he's Italian, right? And uh, they had a big blended family. She goes, we have a big party. Um, Mike celebrate his birthday, even though he's not here. Um, and we would really love for you to come to this, you know, to this birthday party. I gotta tell you, man, I'm like, damn, it's just like. An ambush, <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. I wasn't sure, man, and so I agreed to go. Um, I said, "Yeah, you know, I, I, I'd be happy to come up there," you know, and I did. So I forget how many months later what this was, but it was in the summertime, and I, I flew up there and drove quite a ways to get out to their uh, to a place. And uh, I remember when I pulled up, if you just imagine, there's a house, and behind it was a big, large, open green field, and uh, big, giant circus tents. Um, band, lots of people, man. Um, a lot of people out there, hundreds of people, right? Cars parked everywhere, and I, I get there relatively late, 
late, I mean, after I already started, but I parked the car, find a place to park it, it just happened to be right in front of everybody, you know? And uh, I gotta tell you, I'm like, at this point, getting out of the car with a lot of uh, trepidation. Yeah. I'm like really uncomfortable, I'm really nervous, right? Because I don't know how this is yeah. gonna go down yeah. and what's gonna happen here, right? And so I get out and I remember I'm walking across this field, man. I feel like the movie Braveheart, <laughs> where I got this whole mass of people standing in front of me, looking at me coming, yeah. and I'm walking by myself, right? And uh, the father comes out of the group and meets me halfway in the field. Yeah, it was like it's like really surreal, right? Yeah, Yeah, it was really surreal, right? So we stop, and I'm I'm sure, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, you know. I don't even know what to say anymore, you know. I'm sorry for your loss, you know, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, What are you going to say, right? Yeah. And he looks at me, he goes, I just have one question for you. I said, yes, sir. He goes... Were you with my son when he died? And I remember what Joe told him. Yeah, that was instant. Yeah. And then I thought about, you know, do I do I lie or I just tell him the truth, right? Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a man he wants to know and he has a right to know, sure. right? It's his son. And I go, sir, I said, your son was still alive when I found him. I said, I did everything I could to help him. And... I said, unfortunately, he passed away in my arms. There's nothing I could do for him. And I'm so sorry for that, right? And um, he looked at me. He put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, I just want you to know. He goes, out of anybody that could have been there with my son, he said, I'm glad it was you that was there with him. It was you that was there with him in his last breath. And nobody else. Yeah. He goes, and, that, and that made him feel kind of good to know that it was me there with him, right? And uh, he goes, thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for trying to help him. Um, thank you for coming. And come on over here and join the family. And and at that point, everybody came out. And I was, I was actually surprised how many people had my book. <laughs> and they all wanted autographs, right? And take pictures. And, you know, and basically I was, you know, I was welcomed into the family. It's like, you know what? You always will be part of this family. You always have a home. You always have a place to come. You know, you always have family and friends here. And it was a big gathering, man, between Cubans and Italians, you know? And um, and then, you know, the festivities went on, you know? The band played, you know, food and barbecue. And, you know, people talked about Mike. You know, he had a nice memorial set up for him, you know? And uh, very cool. And uh, really neat what they did for him, you know, and uh, it was unfortunate that it had to be, you know, under those circumstances. But that's what happened, man. And uh, so that was the opening chapter of American Badass. And um, I wrote it in there and I thought the relevancy was, you know, I want people to understand, you know, tomorrow's not guaranteed, man. You know, shit happens. And... uh, you're either ready for it or you're not. Yeah. It's always better to be prepared, you know, psychologically be prepared. You know, the truth is we never know what we're going to do. Even when we're prepared in those, in those situations, um, we can just hope that our training, you know, our maturity, our knowledge 
carries the day for us, right? And because uh, I've seen people under those circumstances totally crack, you know, like totally crack and, and just become dysfunctional. But, uh, you know, the other thing I wanted to people, you know, I wanted to remember I said in the beginning, I wanted this book to inspire young men. And when I read that, I wanted them to realize it's not about being a hero because there's nothing heroic about that. There's not, there was nothing to be a hero about, right? It's, it's just, I got to go down there, find these men, hopefully yeah. they're still alive yeah. and save their lives, right? And uh, because that's the right thing to do. And, uh, and keep my head on my shoulder, you know? And so that was the intent was to inspire, you know, people to give them, young men to give them something to, um, a point of reference for the future, right? Go, okay, I remember this story, you know? And that's how we learn, man, as we grow up. You know, we don't learn from reading a book on shit. You know, we learn from experiences. We learn from others. We learn from watching others and, and hearing the stories. Really? You did that? That's, you know, yeah. that's how we, yeah. that's how we internalize everything and we grow, right? Um, and so there's a story in there. Actually, it's not, it's not in this chapter, not in this book. Um, I just wrote a story about it not too long ago. I remember my, I won't go into all the details, but when I was a kid, I grew up in Germany and I lived with my grandparents, my uncles and my cousins, my German family a lot. Um, I was very close to my grandparents, close to my cousins, my uncles, everybody, you know? And uh, one day, I was about eight years old, my mom, my sister and I, we all went to grandparents house and uh, there's a big argument with my grandfather and grandmother make a long story short we ended up leaving that day my mom was very mad she said she's never coming back you know you know what women do right and so um and so i was like shit what now we're gonna come back that's you know my family i was kind of like scary right yeah. and uh we went home and then we get a call the next morning that my uh, grandfather disappeared Long story short, he committed suicide. He hung himself from a tree that on a path that he and I would walk around all the time. Um, and there's there's a, there's a chapter in the story about me and my grandfather, American Badass, about me and my grandfather and some of the things that, uh, you know, we experienced together. And uh, again, he learned some teaching points. But, uh, you know, it's... Um, I remember where my father, grandfather hung himself was a large river called the Donau River. Um, and, you know, it's like they had a footpath that we would go down all the time. He hung himself in this one tree. But I remember the river thinking, you know, my uncle, who's also one of my mentors, jumped off this bridge and saved a drowning man from this river, which is a very turbulent, fast running river. It's a very dangerous river. And uh, he went in and saved the guy and, and, and uh, brought him back and I, I've never forgotten that even at the age of eight that man my uncle saved a guy from that river man and uh, and so he in my mind became a legend you know in my fa- in my thoughts and my family you know and I was proud that man yeah, you yeah. know this guy jumped off the bridge and went after a guy in, in this river man like shit you know I wouldn't even go across that in a boat and he'd save the guy right so these are the things my point is you know we remember stories like that right and uh and as we grow older, we don't want to be the one that's the chicken shit in the family, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, don't, yeah. So, you know what I mean? And so, you know, you know, when you don't have examples to, you know, to grow up and, and look at, 
then you you tend to you know you tend to question your your courage you tend to question a lot of things man and, and we have a lot of that going on today with our kids um our young men they're not challenged they're not pushed to challenge themselves right oh you want to play football okay stay home and play nintendo yeah you know whatever the, whatever the hell it is they play these days right um see i don't even care right? i don't yeah. even i don't give a shit about it because that's all bullshit yeah right video games is all bullshit yeah. right so it's not gonna not gonna teach you about real life you know um but that's where everybody's at, man. You know, these kids are, you know, they're basically, you know, pacified, you know, and it's okay, you know, go inside, don't go out in the rain, you know. It's a different generation, but it's going to reflect badly on, on us in the future, um, in our future generations. There it already is. So um, so basically that's that's the, the first two chapters of the book. Um, that's how we start this thing. And, uh, again, at the end of the day, it's about uh, – Mentorship, um, you know, badassery is not about how tough you are, how many people you can fuck up, how many people you killed. Yeah. Um, it's, it's about, you know, doing the right thing, using your head, um, being a good example. And I say good example because there's can't be a perfect example because we're not. Yeah. You know, we all have flaws. I have a lot of flaws, but uh, at least try to be the best that you can be. Help other people, um, do the right things, and. Um, so that's what it's all about, and uh, you know, in the, in the future, uh, we'll, you know, some of the following podcasts will go into some of the other areas that are a little bit more um, spirited and uh, fun, yeah. and uh, funny, and uh, you know, it starts off serious, but uh, as we go move along, you're you're gonna find that I laugh at myself a lot, I make fun of myself a lot, um, you know, I talk about things that would embarrass most people, you know, about myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't care. Uh, yeah, right. I, I said that the first time we talked was that's why I liked your book so much is because it you kind of you kind of chop yourself down, you know, it's because it's anyone else, myself included, reading this. And it's like, here I am above my parents garage doing a podcast and I'm reading a story about, you know, being a Delta Force in your young 20s. And it's like it's hard to relate to, but you bring it down to you do you boil it down to lessons that you can relate to where it's. Oh, okay. You know, it's like, you know, you would rather a fearful man than over a fearless man because a fearless man's retarded. But you know, who's going to be a who's going to be a real champ when the bullets start flying? And you can only know once the bullets do start flying. You might say have some moron Afghani next to you, but he fucking steps up like Rambo. No, I'll never be in that situation. But are there things where it's just in my daily life, sticking up for what's right? Or, you know, where will I be when all of a sudden it's 30 and my parents are like, move the fuck out of your uh, my house. And it's like, okay, bullets start flying and I find a way to make money on the podcast. It's like, okay, I'm not in a war zone, but it's the same thing. It's like push comes to shove. And in that way, you can kind of relate to it. It's And that's why I like your book is because it's not just look at me, look at me, you'll never be this. It's you boil it down, right? It's like, Trump is a billionaire president, but I guarantee you he still has like he still argues with his wife. Right? It's like it's kind of that. It's it, it allows you to identify with something that you normally never would be able to. So it's with you, it might be, you know, ice and guys in the middle of the desert. With me, it's like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna f- email this podcast guest. Not the same, but it's the same lesson. And that's why I appreciate it. But um yeah. We said we do an hour. We're at an hour twenty. So let's, let's wrap this bitch up, Dale. And we'll uh, part two incoming. We're going to go through Dale's whole book. It's going to be an entire series of podcasts. And um, 
but yeah, I think that was a fantastic part one. Awesome, man. Fuck Appreciate yeah, you having me on. Yeah. As always, right, dude. It's, yeah, this is your podcast. Yeah, come on in, man. <laughs> Fuck yeah, Dale. Nice. All right, my man. All right, bro. Well, I appreciate it, and um, yeah, I'm going. I'm going up to DC on Wednesday. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I wish I could be there. You know, it sounds like it's going to be uh, just show it's be up. an interesting event, man. There's going to be a lot of knuckleheads coming there to start some shit. Good. And I hope, I hope, I hope that the right does not submit to these antifa. You know, these freaking goons, man. You know, they, 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 without, without saying any names, I know a lot of guys that are going and it's a lot of guys who've deployed before and they, they don't give a they fuck. Need to, they they need to put them back in their place, man. If I, if I had to make a recommendation, it's like, you know what? Don't go up there stomping your feet and pouting. Yeah. You know, make some real noise, take some shit, own it, man. Yeah. Own everything, man. And let the politicians know. That you know what we're not going to be fearful. We're not going to be intimidated. Yeah. Um, we are something. That we are the people. And we are to be reckoned with. Yeah. You you pushed us too far. You are not. You know you are not bulletproof. You are not secure. Don't think that the army can save your ass. You know what? You know the numbers of, of armed citizens in this country far outnumber the military. And no, drones and tanks are not going to do anything for you, man. Um, this is going to be guerrilla warfare. So as politicians, they need to get a wake-up call and realize they work for us. They work for us. That's it, man. Uh, we don't work for them. We don't submit to them. They work for us. And uh, hopefully these, that message is made loud and clear. Those judges, you know, they keep you know dismissing this shit. Everybody, everybody in the deep state needs a wake-up call, man. You know what? A lot of us are not happy with the election because we we know there's fraud. We've seen it with our own eyes, um, and we want something done with it. As far as I'm concerned, if there's one fraudulent vote. That might as well have been a million fraudulent votes. Yeah. Everybody's vote counts, right? That's what you, everybody's saying. Yeah. And goddamn it, every man's vote better count. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Otherwise, start all over. Yeah. Well, not even yeah. start all over. That's one thing I, we got to wrap this up. But that's one thing I keep thinking of yeah. is there's not all starting over. If you get caught cheating, they don't go okay. Let's start over with no cheating this time. If you get caught cheating, you're disqualified. That's my oh, logic. Yeah. But well, that's that's another episode for another time. All right. Dale Comstock, thank you, sir. Book will be linked in the description. Stick it in the top comment. Go buy it, you cheap fucks. It's a great read. All right, Dale. I'll see you, man. Take it easy, buddy. Peace. Bye-bye.